Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wertman coming to you live from the Dream Imaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call in all time zones in between and around the world. And the eyes are around the world today as the U.S. Women's National Team kick off their campaign in this year's 2019 World Cup in France. They play later today at 3 p.m. Eastern against Thailand. And uh, we will all be watching. All eyes will be on them to see how they look. In their warm-up matches, they were winning. They have a winning streak coming in, but they were not convincing in the way that they were playing. So it was more more of a execution style of play. And that, that really is going to be... Um, you know, an issue for uh, for for this team. We have the the biggest collection, the best collection of talent in the world on the women's side, and and I don't think that is disputable. Um, player for player, talent for talent, we have the deepest roster of of individual players in the entire world. So we're if we win. Or if we lose, it's not going to be about talent. It's going to be about how we play. So it's more of a of a tactical scenario, a tactical issue that is is going to come into play in terms of uh, success, on field success. If you look at a team like Spain or a team like France, for example, who have already played uh, their their opening games, there is a there is a sense of collective, a sense of of team in the way that they play tactically. There is connecting together. It's very, um, very beautiful in the way they play. Quite honestly, and and when you look at the Spanish national team, player for player, they they do not match up against the U.S. women's national team as individuals, but as a collective. They, they are a very difficult team to play against and, and have the ability to keep possession, have the ability to, to, to work together. So the sum of their parts is greater than their individual pieces. When we look at the U.S. women's national team, too often our success is based on individual performances. Um, so one of the key components for this World Cup, this 2019 campaign for the U.S. Women's National Team, is how well does the collective play as a unit? The 11 players on the field, how do they play together? How do they connect together? If the U.S. Women's National Team tactically um, and, and in terms of a unit, if they're able to uh, connect together and stay connected together and play a, a possession based um, type of game and are able to control the game with the ball they're they're nearly unbeatable I mean that's the talent level on display if the midfield of the US women's national team can control the middle of the pitch and give the Fords and, and wingers the opportunity to take chances, to get forward, to run at back lines. The U.S. Women's National Team are going to be in really, really good shape in this World Cup. 
But, and this is the big but, if the team doesn't stay connected, and connected does not just mean, you know, proximity physically on the field. When, when, I'm, when I'm using the word connected, what I mean is that the, the rhythm, the, re, the rehearsed movements, player movements on the field, being able to, to be in good passing lanes, meaning we're able to keep possession, those kind of things, right? Staying connected, meaning that your team is set up to not only win the ball, but keep the ball and, and, and essentially dominate possession. If, if the U.S. women's national team is unable to do that, if they are unable to control the middle of the pitch and they play a France or they uh, play a Spain, that's when they open themselves up for potential trouble. Now, it doesn't mean that they they will definitely lose. Now, that that's that's the case for other teams around the world. In the case of the U.S. Women's National Team, it that that's not the fear that if we don't have the ball, we can't win. It's that if we don't have the ball, that's the best chance we have to lose. And so the, the real important piece here is how does this team play? Do they play calm? Do they play relaxed? Or do they, do they go into every match carrying the burden of being the defending champions? Do they carry the burden of, of being the global standard that everyone is looking to, to reach in terms of individual players and in terms of that prize World Cup champions? So when we when we watch the, these matches today you, at, at at nine Eastern, we have New Zealand and the Netherlands. At eleven Eastern, uh, excuse me, at at noon Eastern, we have Chile and Sweden. And then again at three Eastern, United States and Thailand. When we look at these matches, you're going to see different levels of play in individual levels in terms of you know player performances uh, you're going to see a big gap in in these matches compared to to the individual talent of the U.S. women's national team but where where the U.S. women's national team has traditionally gotten trouble is when they come up against teams that play well together as a collective and and the reason why that's such an important point the reason why that that's a big deal is not only is that the the window at w in which we can get caught out the the place where we can get into trouble as a team but it's also that it's it's unnecessary we have you know roster spot by roster spot on this US women's national team roster we have the talent to be the best in the world. We are the reigning World Cup champions. Our issue is the collective. It is the it is the ability to play together as a team, to execute, to keep possession. I think back to the the 92 Olympics and the US, USA basketball was was frustrated that they were not at the top of the game and that their best players were not playing in the Olympics. Uh, 
They changed the rules, and those rules, those rule changes, believe it or not, have had effects on soccer uh, ever since then. But one of the one of the rules that were changed, and one of the things that was put in place, is called the Ted Stevens Act, and uh, and we've talked about that on the show before, as it relates to soccer. But in this case, it, the 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 main impetus for this law change was actually the '92 Dream Team, and giving them as professional athletes the ability to play in the Olympics um, w- under the U.S. Uh, Olympic committee usoc setup they couldn't play before it was a u.s thing it wasn't it wasn't a um an international thing and and so that rule changed took place and we saw the greatest basketball team ever assembled michael jordan magic johnson larry bird the list goes on and on and on incredible talent top to bottom and, and if you go and watch any documentaries or if you read anything or talk to anyone that covered that team, they will tell you that the best matches during that era, the 90, the, you know, getting ready for the Olympics and, 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 and the Olympics themselves, the best matches were actually the, the internal scrimmages. That's how loaded this roster was. That the best basketball games were the 92 Dream Team scrimmaging against themselves. They go into the Olympics and they just obliterate everyone in the 92 Barcelona games. But the key to this was not just individual performances. What made them so good was how they played as a team. They didn't just have the best talent. They didn't just have the best players. And they didn't just have the best player who became the best player of all time in Michael Jordan. They had an ability to connect together. They had the ability to to find each other, passes, cover each other with defense. And then their individual talents then took over from there. It was incredible to watch. There has never been a basketball team as good since, and there will likely never be a basketball team as good ever. That collection of talent was unbelievable. And the key to that whole campaign was that that talent gelled together as a team. The sum of their parts were just as good or better than they were as individual players, as individual talents. They played as a unit, as a team, and they were unstoppable. And And if we look at the U.S. women's, women's national team, and we look at our players, there are parallels to that 92 Dream Team in terms of individual talent compared to the rest of the world. There is a clear difference individually when you go roster position by roster position with the U.S. Women's National Team and national teams around the world. There are very few teams that can give them a game if it's just based on individual players. But the issue that we have, and we have had for a while, is that our U.S. women's national team has not been set up to play and exploit the talent gap, meaning that the sum of their parts is not leveraging that talent for success. They're winning because of their talent, but despite 
their play as a unit. And we've seen that in these warm-up games, and that's the element that I'm concerned about as we go into this tournament. I don't have any concerns about them getting out of the group, but as they go deeper into this tournament, that is the area that I'm concerned about is does this team come together? Can this coaching staff actually get this team set up for success as a unit, as a collective if they do figure that out, if they do find a way for the U.S. women's national national team to gel together and play on the field as a unit and leverage the sum of those individual talents, they'll be unstoppable. So far, we've not seen that. We've not seen that under Jill Ellis. Her her coaching and and and. Uh, her MO has not been to create that kind of play. It's been let's, you know, work together as a team, but 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 let's rely more on individual performances. And and I think it's a mistake. I think if we if we had that mentality of playing as a collective and really dominating possession on the field and really playing and connecting together as a team as a unit, we would actually leverage and put our individual players in in even better positions on the field to exploit weaknesses score goals and win matches so uh, we will be following we will be rooting and and hoping to see more success as this 2019 world cup campaign kicks off today for the u.s at 3 p.m eastern standard time against thailand Coming up after the break, we have Haley Carter, and um, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a great interview. She's got such um, such a good, diverse background and insight into the game. It's going to be worth watching for sure. Uh, the sponsor uh, th- this half hour is Dut Kick Brand. They are the maker of soccer products uh, like planners, they have cards where you can draw out plays. They have journals. I mean, it's really, really good good stuff. Check them out at duttkickbrand.com. That is D-U-T-K-I-G brand.com. When you place an order, use the promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off your order and support this show. Again, that is DWSHOW. And you'll get 10% off your order and support this show. We will be right back after this with Haley Carter.
Welcome back in this Tuesday morning. We are delighted to have joining us Haley Carter. She's a former United States Marine Corps officer and retired American professional soccer player. She's the former assistant coach for the Afghanistan women's national football team and the associate chair for the United Soccer Coaches Women's Coaches Advocacy Group. Haley, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? I'm good, Daniel. I'm good. Thank you for having me. So um, it, that was a, that was a mouthful of an introduction. Hopefully, I didn't butcher too much um, in that intro. But no, you did great. I want to I want to ask you um, as as you have had an, an extensive background uh, in the military. Uh, what was it like being in the military and being a, a soccer player, soccer fan, and all of your your stations and your travels? Um, you know, is it a sport that that the military is engaging in in terms of conversation, following, watching when you guys are stationed abroad? Yeah. So you know, obviously, being in the Marine Corps, you know, we're Marines first and foremost, above anything else, and so. Uh, I was actually really fortunate to be able to play all armed forces soccer while I was in the Marine Corps. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit later, but the, um, the best part about being, about being a soccer player in the Marine Corps is on deployments and, you know, whether they were combat deployments in Iraq or they were humanitarian aid missions in Southeast Asia, uh, it's always a conversation starter. So it's either a conversation starter or uh, it's, a sort of a bridge builder um you know i participated in soccer games in iraq against the seventh iraqi army division or with our iraqi our iraqi interpreters and when they realize like you're a woman that can play the game their heads just explode uh and then it becomes this really amazing thing and and people from all different backgrounds will come together around the game even in i was in south korea on a humanitarian aid mission and i bet uh i made a bet against some um, rock Marines that my group of Marines could be their Marines in soccer. And, and, you know, we staged a game and they completely whipped us. It was embarrassing, but um, it was a lot of fun because it got them off of their base for a day. And, you know, we were able to have a good time and we'd been working together doing exercises for 45, 60 days by that point. So uh, we knew each other really well. So it was a great way to sort of end our time together, but yeah, and I think, you know, the, the military, the Marine Corps, um, they tend to care more about sports like, and you're not, this is not going to surprise you, but they tend to care more about sports like wrestling, boxing, <laughs> rugby, um, not as much the non-contact sports, um, but I was really fortunate. Like I said, I had COs that supported me, commanding officers that supported me in playing all armed forces soccer and um yeah, it was, you know, great publicity for our units and, um, and, you know, obviously they care about athleticism and being an athlete is important in the military. So yeah, long story short. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, ba backing up, you grew up in Texas and, uh, you mm -hmm. know, w uh, won a lot in high school and then you decide to, uh, go to the U S Naval Academy and you play, you yeah. know, four years at the U S Naval Academy. What, what led you down the path towards military, you know, going to the Naval Academy, military ser service after you finished up at the Naval Academy? 
Um, well, you know, if, if, everybody who goes to the Naval Academy has a service obligation when they graduate. So, um, so that that I can tell you, I made the decision probably between my junior and senior year um, at Navy to go Marine Corps um, because I had met several officers that were on the yard or the campus. You know, the yard is what we call it. Uh, that I just really clicked with their leadership style. Uh, also, I don't really like being on shit, um, running on a treadmill, facing a gray wall, moving back and forth, kind of an unenjoyable experience. And I really like sunlight. So the Marine Corps was kind of a no brainer for me. Um, but my decision actually to serve came earlier. You know, I, I was watching a show on the Discovery Channel. I must have been in seventh grade or eighth grade and um, maybe eighth grade. And it was featuring all of the service academies. And I remember watching that show and telling my mom, I really want to go to Navy. And then as I, you know, was getting closer, I was being recruited, getting closer to graduation. You know, I was a little bit hesitant on whether or not I was going to apply or if I could really even get in. But I went to their summer camp, uh, had a great time and was sold. And so that was where I wanted to go. And, and even though I had offers at other division one schools where I probably would have gotten a lot more playing time my first two or three years. Um, yeah, I, I knew that I wanted to go to Navy and that was my goal and that's what I did. <laughs> so, so you, you yeah. got to, you got to see the world, you were stationed all over the world. You, you spent some time in yeah. Hawaii. Um, not a bad outpost, um, to, to, be, awesome. to be stationed at. <laughs> yeah. Um, Miss and, it every day, <laughs> right? Um, I've yet to meet anyone who's either been there or or lived there who says different than what you just said. So um, I don't know. I don't know. You'd be surprised. Really, I, went, I have met some people that are stationed out there that hate it. They get island fever and they get tired of it. I was never like that. I was always outside. There's always something cool going on. There's a triathlon or a half marathon or. There's always something cool that's going on. We've got great soccer. I never got tired of it, but there are plenty of people that are main, like from the mainland that are, they, they can't handle the isolation. Um, but yeah, so those guys are party poopers. We don't hang out with them. <laughs> no doubt. Um, when, when you, um, did your service, you did eight years in the military. This mm -hmm. is after four years at the U S Naval Academy. And, and then you kind of try to jumpstart a professional career, um, you know, after, after doing your, your service time, what was that transition yeah. like? Um, in, 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 did sort you. Of. So, so it's kind of one of those things where all the stars just sort of align. Um, and I, when I transitioned out of the Marine Corps, I transitioned out and I took a job in Austin, Texas, working for a, a global, um, technology uh like electronics manufacturer and um and it, like i said it was a global role i could work anywhere uh, you know i was either on the phone at eight o'clock in the morning with poland or eight o'clock at night with china it was kind of one of those things it, it didn't really matter where i was working because the people i was supporting were all over the world and um and I had been doing that for maybe six months. And then the Dynamo had mentioned establishing an NWSL expansion team. I didn't believe it, you know, because I've lived through the three iterations of the league. And I thought that the league was a little too, uh, it was a little too premature for it to start expanding because we had just finished the 2013 season. And, um, but lo and behold, I was wrong. And um, they established the dash and, they brought Tony DeChico in and then they brought Randy Waldrum in and 
uh, I kind of watched the development of the roster and I had reached out to Randy because I knew that they were going to need another goalkeeper. At that point, they only had two um, with Aaron uh, McLeod and Bianca Henninger. And so um, I, I just kind of went out on a limb and, and reached out to him and we touched base and he was like, yeah, Haley, you're in Texas. Come to tryouts and we'll go from there. And so I went to open tryouts and the rest is sort of history. I played for him for three seasons and uh, after the end of the first season, I actually moved to Houston um, with my son and, and um, you know, continued playing. And then I actually changed and I thought, well, I'm in Houston. I should probably find a job in Houston. So I took a position here in Houston. And so I actually worked a full-time job the entire time I was playing. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a family, I have a son to support who's amazing. So, um it was an interesting transition for me because it definitely was not your traditional transition. And I had a lot of competing priorities, you know, other than playing. And so um, it was great though. And then later on, we had other moms on the team. We had Jess McDonald come in. And um, so, you know, it was nice. It was a lot of fun. We had Megan Cushing, who is Kaylee Ojai's sister. She was training with us for a while and they obviously have kids. And so um, we had a really good group together and Randy was always really supportive of working things out and family and work and managing all of that so I was really fortunate while there with the Houston Dash you started to volunteer and and then work as a coach what yeah what what was that uh, where did that interest come from more than just being a player and being a coach yeah I knew I wasn't going to be able to play forever um especially with, you know, the competing priorities that I had going on. And, and I've just been really fortunate with all of the things that the game has given me. So I wanted the opportunity to be able to influence others um, and helping them kind of find their way and path with the game and uh, influence their lives through the game. And so it was kind of, it was sort of a natural thing for me. And so I started with Houston Tillotson in that, at the end of that first season, before I actually moved to Houston, Houston Tillotson is a um, historical black college in Austin phenomenal um staff that I was working with Andy Tunicliffe he's amazing um I had great players girls that were working two or three jobs going to school just to be able to afford to play it was amazing uh, and then I transitioned to Sam Houston State when I moved to Houston because they were closer working in Austin wasn't going to be feasible um and yeah I just I I really love working at a high level with you know kids who are um you know, really enjoying the game. And, and of course I, I can coach youth and I do coach youth, but I, you know, I love the college level. I love um, the senior high school level and, and it's just kind of where my passion is. People give me a hard time about that. That's just the reality. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was sort of a natural progression for me knowing that I wasn't going to be playing forever. And I still want to be involved in the game because the game has been so much of my identity my entire life. And, I wasn't going to walk away from it when I retired. So I wanted to make sure that I was setting myself up for success um, as I made that transition from play. At, at what point did you get the opportunity or did the conversation start for you to be a part of the coaching staff for the uh, women's national team for Afghanistan? So um, I was in my senior, my senior, it was in my last year of playing. So it was in 2016. 
I had just negotiated my contract with Hummel International, Hummel USA, who's my um, who's my personal sponsor at the time. And uh, Hummel International at that time was the kit sponsor for the Afghan Football Federation. And they were getting ready to do their new kit launch with the uh, hijab, built-in hijab and base layers that go under the kit. It's a custom kit. It's a beautiful kit. I love it. It's gorgeous. Um, they put a lot of time and thought and detail into it. And they said, hey, you know, we know you've deployed to the Middle East. We know that the women of the Middle East, you know, have a special place in your heart. We've got to introduce you to Kalita Popal. She's the program director for the national team, and she's doing an internship here. And so, of course, I said, yeah, definitely. And um, we got in touch, and we just headed off right away. And I asked her, you know, I said, if you need any help, like, let me know. And about two weeks later, she called me and asked me how serious I was about that offer. And I said, what do you need? And, um, and she said, well, we need a goalkeeper coach. I'm like, got that, no problem. Uh, and then she's like, and I need help with all of these other things because I'm trying to build this team from scratch. So we sort of set this program out to, to put together a training camp and fundraise because the football federation was not supporting us financially, and um, which we're hearing a lot about with, with other nations, you know, World Cup and Jamaica not getting the financial support. That's happening all the time. Um, and so that was happening with us with the Afghanistan Football Federation. And so trying to fundraise and, and scout and recruit and identify players. You know, half of our players are in Europe and North America and Australia and the other half are in Kabul. So trying to identify those players um, that are outside of Afghanistan that we could bring into a training camp and, um, you know, managing travel and logistics and visas and all of those things you'd normally associate with sort of a director of op type role. Um, you know, that, that those were the things that I was managing in addition to coaching. So, yeah, we just hit it off right away and um, never looked back. <laughs> that process, that time on the ground, working through basically building a women's national team from scratch and go, not only just going through those steps, but also the geopolitical aspects of that uh, yeah. whole situation as well. Uh what was that like compared to your career and opportunities playing as an American growing up in Texas, you're playing, um, you know, in high school and then in college and then, you know, you go into the military and then you come back and then you play professionally with the Houston dash. What was it like as a coach? Now you're, you're in an environment that's completely different from what you experienced. Can you describe that for us? Well, you know, I have to say my, my experience in the Marine Corps um, helped quite a bit um, because I'd been in that environment before. And and so I kind of knew the obstacles that they were facing and how I navigate, especially the geopolitical um, and cultural aspects of it were I was accustomed to that. I, you know, I, I've, it's something that I've grown used to. And, and I can tell you that the things I've seen in the world and the places that I've been and the people that I've interacted with, like I, I, we, the great thing about our staff with Afghanistan is that we check our privilege and we check our ego at the door. Like that, that has been a key tenant of our staff all along. Like, and if you can't do that, you're not welcome. <laughs> um, and so for us, you know, being in that environment for any of us, I think, to be honest, I think, um, you know, Kelly, Lindsay, and I were talking about this just the other day that 
for people that are new, I think, to the international women's football scene, especially dealing with teams that are in, we'll say, like the lower, below the bottom, below the top 50, and especially from 75 to like 112 in the FIFA rankings, um, if the first time you're kind of thrusted into that environment, you're somewhat naive. And like I said, I was fortunate because I've dealt with that environment in the Marine Corps. And um, it, so I'm used to kind of navigating some of those conversations and, you know, Kelly is not. And so it's kind of funny. We had this dynamic where I was always sort of the bad guy and Kelly would be the optimistic one and I would be the negative Nancy. And, um, and we would kind of get to a solution together Um you know, where I would just be like, yeah, I think that's a bad idea. And she'd be like, what about this? And I'm like, well, what about that? And um, so we would, we would work together to find some, some solutions, but um, it is a big difference. It's a massive difference. You know, I mean, obviously we, those women are sacrificing, literally sacrificing their lives to play the game. Like it's not this cliche esoteric statement. They are literally sacrificing their lives. They're getting spit on, they're getting rocks thrown at them. Um, playing the game is a life or death thing. And so, you know, to say that it's different, is probably the biggest understatement I could put out there. But um, so the dynamics that we face as coaches, you know, understanding that, for instance, our players can't go to a gym and lift weights. They can't do that as women. They have to work out in their bedroom. And so, you know, our sports scientist, John DeWitt, who put together all of our workouts, we tasked him with, listen, you've got body weight workouts and you've got a space that's about four yards by six yards for them to be able to work out in. So can you put workouts together that they can manage in that space? And he would go and do that. Um, and so we'd have to get really creative about the things that we were doing and how we could manage that. You know, um, another example, they weren't given access. The players in Kabul are never given access to the full-size field that's literally right outside the Afghan Football Federation's doorstep. So they're typically playing on 7v7 or 9v9 size fields, and then they come and we're training for international friendlies, and they're just not fit enough to go 11v11 for 90 minutes, maybe 11v11 for 20 minutes. And so, um, you know, recognizing that and having to manage that, and it's not their fault. So you can't be upset with the players. You know, they're doing their workouts in their room, but there's only so much that translates um, to a full-size pitch and training and playing on full-size pitch. So, um, yeah. And, and then of course the uniforms that they have to wear and playing covered and there are just so many differences. Uh, and so, like I said, for us as a staff, it was important. You check your privilege and you check your ego at the door and any preconceived notions you have about the game or how to manage a team or, or whatever, like you got to learn as you go. And so that's what we did. And, um, and those women have become our family and, you know, there's nothing in the world that Kelly, Kalita and I wouldn't do to make sure that those girls are taken care of and, and, um, and protected. And I say girls, by the way, I, I know that that's, it's a big feminist thing to say women, but the reality is I'm talking about 14, 15, 16 year old girls. So, um, yes, we have some women on our team, but when I say girls, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to discredit them. The reality is I've got 14 year old girls on my team. So. So obviously, no, that's, that that's, that's good. Um, and, and I think, I think listening to, you know, you recount the experiences, the observations, et cetera, I think we get a, a clear picture <laughs> that you mean well, uh, by these ladies or young ladies, 
or, or girls as you as you use that term as well um we we, yeah. we definitely can tell in your voice um how much you care the concern you have for for those players um not just as a, as as being players on a team but as as people as individuals um one of the things that's been in news in the news in the last few days is the fact that the um, Federation president uh, Kareem Karamadine has been uh, banned, received a lifetime ban from from FIFA, um, which just kind of goes to your point about some of the um, experiences, uh, tribulations, trials, hardships. Um, I mean, we can keep going through, you know. Uh, words to describe the situation that these players have had to endure uh, to to just for the love of the game to play and and, to, and not only to play but to represent their country and um, and, and so in 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 the things that that you have seen uh, with these young ladies um, in 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 their in their work to be become better players. Um, what what have what have some of those conversations been in terms of their dreams, and uh, in, in their aspirations as people or as players, uh, in terms of whether that's playing the game or maybe it's down the road coaching the game or ha- has the game itself uh, allowed them to dream bigger and aspire to do something maybe that's never been done before in their country? Yeah, absolutely. You know. Um... For, for many of our players, the they play because they want to inspire other women to come out of their houses and and to um, and to use the game as a tool to uh, explore educational opportunities or avoid being married at a young age or just escape the harsh reality of life in Afghanistan for an hour and a half every day. Uh, you know, use the game as a stress release and you, you know, it, it's a powerful tool. Right. And so that has been, that has been a main driver for them. Also something that's huge, you know, the Afghan men's national team won SAS um, a few years ago when they won SAS, the South Asia football federation championship, all of our players that were in Kabul remember that day as a day that everybody, like there was peace across the entire country. Nobody was fighting. Everybody was happy. Everyone was getting along. And that is like really stuck out in their, you know, collective memory of what the possibilities are for a national team to be able to bring pride to their country. And they wanted to be able to do that. They wanted to be able to do the same thing. They want to be able people to look at the women's national team and see the possibilities that were there. And so um, that, that, you know, the men really inspired them in that moment. And so that's something that they've carried with them and into our team. And they just want to bring pride to their country and pride to Afghan culture and to the nation and to Afghan people everywhere. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's nothing less admirable than, um, than that. So, yeah, it's amazing. They're amazing. <laughs> They're just amazing young women. They they truly are. They truly are. And their stories are incredible. And just to hear, you know, we, I think I think Americans are, are guilty of, of living in a bubble and sometimes we can't help it. Yeah. Right. We don't realize how good yeah. we have it. Yeah. And um, yeah. and I think it's I think it's great that you are not only doing the work that you've been doing, but then to, to be able to tell those stories and share 
those experiences so that people do get an under understanding of what it's like in other parts of the world and some of the challenges uh, that that these women face that, uh, you know, our women uh, here in America, you know, not to say that any place is perfect, but, you know, there are obviously uh, steeper hills to climb in other countries than than yeah. what we have uh, yeah. here in America. We're yeah. blessed in that way. Um, in in all of your work, you've gotten recognitions in the military. You've gotten recognitions as a player, as a uh, in your work as a coach, as an ambassador uh, for the game, etc. And now you are the associate chair um, for the United Soccer Coaches Women's Coaches Advocacy Group. Uh, can you share a little yeah. bit about that project, that that group, and and what what you guys are uh, are hoping to to achieve through that effort? Yeah, so the Women's Committee has been around since the '90s, um, and it's sort of evolved. It's the Women's Membership Group for a while now. It's the Women Coaches Advocacy Group, and um, you know, historically, you know, we were established to be a powerful voice for women in the women's game within the coaching community and with within United Soccer Coaches, which is formerly the um, National Soccer Coaches Association of America. And uh, so, you know, moving into that role and sort of helping with the leadership there, our purpose really is to help United Soccer Coaches in their mission to sort of develop and recognize women coaches in the game recognize excellence in the women's game. And of course, when we, you know, we're talking about the women's game, we want to recognize both women coaches and men coaches of women. Uh, they're equally important. We want to see the, the, the women's um, game succeed across the board. So, and I think inc inclusivity matters. Um, you know, you have a lot of men in powerful positions making decisions in the women's game. So, you know, we can't, we can't leave them out. Um, and really it's just to make sure that we're taking care of each other. We're providing opportunities for each other. Um, we're ensuring that there are mentorship and educational opportunities, making sure that women coaches are getting opportunities to be seen and heard, whether it's at the convention, whether it's in social media, whether it's articles in soccer journal, um, you know, and just ensuring that women are being seen and being noticed and the women who are working really hard, whether it's at the youth level, the high school game, the Division Two, Division Three college game, Division One, uh, internationally, professionally, that we are capturing the great work women coaches are doing at every level of the game, everywhere. Uh, and so it's it's a little bit of an undertaking, but um, you know something that I've sort of taken to, and I'm working with Samantha Snow, who's the chair of the group, is really delegating and empowering as many young coaches to be involved as possible. So it makes managing. Uh, those projects a little bit easier and it's also giving opportunity for us to develop those leadership skills and see where different coaches fit so that we can continue and, and sort of create a legacy that is ongoing um, for the women coaches advocacy group because that's really that legacy is really important for us to maintain so yeah. The the women's game is is growing in different parts of the world. We're seeing Europe start to really put some some investment resources, uh, pay attention, uh, give interest to the women's game. We're seeing, you know, countries uh, like Spain have some really amazing crowds, England, Italy, etc. Um, and, and with that, uh, you, you have these kind of established football cultures, right, and these powers that we know on the on the men's side of the ledger that are now really starting to, to um, you know, put some, some Invest in investment the into the women's game. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. 
when we when we look at that and and you your background as a player, your background as a coach, um, and, and being uh, in and around and involved in the game in the way that you are, uh, what challenges do you see for our U.S. women's national team? as these traditional football powerhouses around the, the globe start to, to make the women's game a priority in their own countries? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see an immediate problem, but I see, I see a short to medium problem, short to medium term problem, because here, here's what's happening, I think. We're seeing that investment. We're seeing that investment at every level. So, and it's filtering up. Through their age group so Spain you know you're seeing the Spanish women totally kick ass at the youth uh, world cup level and so we're seeing that you know Italy this weekend and and what they achieved in upsetting Australia that's that's not starting at the top right it's starting with the youth national teams and then those players are filtering up to their senior national teams so we're really seeing development happening in the youth programs and I don't think that we've seen that recently. I don't think we've seen that since Alice Morgan, you know, was in the youth program, since Kelly O'Hara was in the youth program. We haven't really seen that. I mean, we've got uh, Mal Pugh, we've got um, Tierney Davidson that's coming up. Um, but I think there's a gap. And so, you know, that's where they're going to start catching up to us. If we don't start changing how we're managing and coaching and programming our youth national teams to be successful – they're going to catch up. They're going to catch up because when the Megan Rapinos and the Kelly O'Hara's and, 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 you know, when that group retires, when Carly retires, you know, when that group retires, there's going to be a gap. And I don't know what that future looks like. Um, we have some players that are coming up, but I don't know that those, I don't know that we're going to have enough players coming up to be able to fill those gaps successfully. We're not finding success at the youth national team level right now. Uh, and so, that's a problem uh and those countries that you're talking about are finding success because that's where they're investing uh and they're really rethinking how they're managing that youth development and that youth coaching and that pipeline and so you know i think that's where u.s soccer really has an opportunity to make some changes and to make some investment uh we can't just be relying on the onesies or twosies that are coming up now through the program uh, we're going to have to rely more on the youth national team program, I think. And so, uh, you know, and, and whether it's youth national team program or CNWSL, and I think that's another thing that, you know, we have to look at the coaching quality and the training environments in the NWSL, because that's where players are going to be developed. And right now I can't name a national team player other than Jess McDonald, who's a superstar and I love, and again, she's amazing. She played in Houston, I knew that she was going to make good things happen in the coming years. And so, but, you know, other than Jess McDonald, who are we really seeing on the senior national team right now that's been developed through the league? Uh, and so I think there's going to be an increasing importance on managing that and, and what that looks like for player development uh, as a feed. And, and so, you know, I think that's important. Sure, there's lots of, you know, Casey Short was getting opportunities. I'm disappointed that she wasn't included on the roster. I feel like she should have been. Um you know, there's some other players as well, but but again, they're, they're not they're not consistent uh, in the roster through the league, and so you know, I think we're going to have to spend some significant money and time and resources in fixing the youth pipeline, and we're going to U.S. Soccer is going to have to really start looking at, um, especially if they're going to continue to subsidize the league, um, 
the coaching level and training environment that's happening in each of those teams. When, when looking at the youth pipeline, and, and we could spend uh, a month of shows just talking through uh, youth pipeline issues on the on on the the boys and girls side uh, across America, yeah. but on on the on the the girls side of the ledger for these these youth uh, teams and youth development, etc. What are some of the issues that that you see? And, and also, what do you think some of the possible solutions are to fix those issues that you're seeing? My biggest struggle is with the split between ECNL and the DA. Uh, I think you by, by having two teams competing with one another, um, by having two leagues competing with one another, you're really watering down where that talent is playing uh, and how that talent is being developed. Uh, there's a pretty significant parity between some of the teams on the DA side, uh, you know, and, and your top DA teams are a lot more talented collectively than your bottom level DA team. Uh, and I'd like to see that end, but I don't know that there is a solution to that when you've got ECNL competing against the DA. I don't have a solution for that. I just, that is a problem. And I, I know that other coaches see it you know, working at the University of Houston as a volunteer assistant and, and kind of thinking about what the recruiting landscape looks like, um, and, you know, and just having conversations with other college coaches and things that they're struggling with. That's a massive issue. Uh, and, you know, even talking with DOCs and other, you know, technical directors at the youth level, they're struggling with that as well. And then, of course, we've still got ODP and I love ODP. I, you know, I came up through ODP. Most of the senior women's national team players came up through ODP. Uh, I I particularly like ODP now because it's kind of that opportunity for players whose families can't afford to spend a mortgage payment a month for them to play soccer to get the opportunity to be seen, um, to be coached by high-level coaches. And it gives, it gives us an opportunity to sort of find that diamond in the rough player whose parents just don't have the resources to get them on a DA team or on an ECNL team. Uh, and so, you know, for me, I, I, I do. I'm, I'm a huge fan of ODP. I think that there are some significantly positive efforts going on in that, in that space uh, to sort of standardize what's, going, what's happening nationally with the states and then with the regions and uh, and I love the investment and the effort that's being put into ODP. I, that was a model that um, I, I think worked. And I think we've moved away from that, obviously, because we've commercialized with ECNL and, and the DA. But, um, you know, I'm, that's kind of where my solution lies. You know, I really appreciate ODP and what ODP does. Uh, and it's just, it's more affordable. And you, you're not, some, in some locations, obviously, if you live in a rural space, you're going to have to drive some amount of time, but I know even in South Texas, obviously South Texas is kind of a big, kind of a big state association. Uh, we still manage to get out to the Valley. We still manage to get out to West Texas to make sure that we're running clinics and we're running IT camps and um, we're running training sessions out there so that, so that everybody's getting an opportunity to be seen. A perfect example of that is Sam Estrada who came out of the Valley. Now she's playing for the Houston Dash. Um, she's getting look at looks for youth national teams. Uh, and, and she was just decided to play in goal. Her, her dad played for the Dallas burn back in the day and he was working with her and without ODP, she would have never been found. Um, and so, you know, you see that that's happening. And so uh, I, it's important for me that we continue to invest in that program. 
Access and opportunity. It's something we talk about a lot on this show. Giving giving every yeah. um, uh, every girl, every boy in this country access and opportunity. And and you know, obviously, what we do with the opportunity is not all going to be the same. It's not not always going to to be equal outcome. But if we can give everyone yep. at least an equal chance, uh, I think we would be better yeah. off as a country. We would find more talent. Um, you know, yeah. th- th- there's uh, with with all of the resources that we have in this country, I do think we could do a much better job of allocating resources and providing access and opportunity to cities, to communities uh, all across this country so that we, we don't have kids on the outside looking in or struggling to, yeah. to find, you know, a chance, you know, and, and sometimes it only just takes, you know, w- one look, one, you know, you, you go and you do a clinic and you, you find a player and you're like, man, that, that player's really good. And, and they would have never gotten a chance had someone not come to, to watch and to see in, in, and then the doors that can open yeah. as a result of that. So um, I think that that's some really good insight there as well. So today, coming up a little bit later, we have the U.S. Women's National Team and Thailand is the, the U.S. Women's National Team kick off their World yep. Cup 2019 campaign. The defending champions, uh, many have picked to, to repeat. Uh, I think they're definitely... Um, always, as is the case, uh, you know, one of the top favorites to, to win the World Cup. Uh, and it's, it's uh, a team that is at a place where when they don't win, there's disappointment. And that means that you have high expectations of yourself and others have those high expectations of you as well uh, when you are a member of the U.S. Women's National Team. What do you see uh, beginning with today and, and through this World Cup for the U.S. Women's National Team and, and their campaign to defend their crown? I mean, they, they certainly have the team to do it. You know, I think, I think, uh, the, I, I think that they won't have any problem advancing out of the group stage. Um, I think that quarterfinal potential quarterfinal matchup against France is going to be tough. Uh, but you know, they, they're not, they're not going to walk into it thinking that they're going to have an easy group group stage and they shouldn't, um, you know, they're going to walk in and, be ready to set the tone this afternoon against Thailand. So, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a great tournament. I, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing Alyssa Mayer uh, excel in this environment. You know, there's been a lot of talk. I know you had Hope on um, last week, but there's been a lot of talk about Alyssa and sort of filling Hope's shoes. And, and I think that's unfair to Alyssa and to Hope as well, to be honest, because they're different athletes. They play with completely different styles. So, trying to get Alyssa to play like hope or trying to compare Alyssa to hope is you're shortchanging both of them. I think Um, they're both amazing athletes and incredible goalkeepers in their own right. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing what Alyssa does on this stage and, um, and God bless Megan Rapinoe. You know, I'm really looking forward to watching her in this tournament and um, you know, so I think it's going to be a great tournament. I'm really excited about it. I can't wait. I'll, I'll be in Lyon for the semifinals and the final uh, a couple different festivals, Equal Playing Field Initiative and uh, Street Football World Festival are going on at that time. And, and I'm really hoping that I get to catch them in the semis and the final. Well, we will all be, be rooting for them here uh, in America for, for, for a repeat and uh, hope that they can uh, win the 2019 Women's World Cup in France. 
with them kicking off their e- efforts today. Haley, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your insight uh, in your background in, in all over the world. And, uh, and I just want to say thank you for your service to this country uh, with your military service as well. Um, it's because of people like you that we have the ability to live in a country like this. So thank you so much for that service and for coming on the show. Thanks. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That is Haley Carter. She is um, doing incredible work. And if if you um, don't know about her, look her up. Find find her on social media um, and connect with her. And I'm sure she would be uh, more than happy to uh, to to chat with you and, and share ideas with you, insights with you as well. Um, but but doing incredible things uh, and good luck to her as she continues to do that work here in the U.S. and around the world. Um, our, our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. They provide clean drinking water to people all over the world and they are changing lives one village at a time, one person at a time. And uh, if you don't know about Charity Water, check them out at charitywater.org. We will be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them, it changes everything. And you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Well, thanks for tuning in this Tuesday, June the 11th. Uh, as I said, the um, the U.S. Women's National Team kicks off their World Cup campaign a little bit later today at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We will be watching, we will be rooting, and uh, hoping for success and a repeat. Uh, it's going to be a tough road after the group stages, but um, they have the talent. Let's see if they can play together and pull it off. Thanks for tuning in. I'd like to thank Haley Carter again for coming on. Um, you know, her story and, and her work is incredible. You should follow her. Check it out. And, um, you know, again, kudos to her. Goodbye, everybody. We will see you again tomorrow. As always, you can watch at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on DanielWorkman.com. Find me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman or at Facebook.com forward slash W-R-K-M-N. 
We will see everybody tomorrow.